As you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word to Ephesians chapter 2. We continue uh, in this uh, sermon series through Paul's letter, a letter he is writing from prison to a, a young church, a church that had experienced a powerful conversion through the preaching of the gospel, a powerful conversion out of, out of the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so as we continue to look through this this morning, we are moving into chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read um, through verse 10, uh, but our focus this morning really is going to be uh, on these uh, first four verses. Uh, in order to set this in context, what I want to do is I'm going to start back in 115 so that you can see the way Paul is transitioning through this prayer uh, into uh, this exhortation uh, to the Ephesian believers as, as Paul is moving through this prayer to an exhortation to you. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you speak to us as we come to you and that you give us the grace we need to receive the food of your holy word. Take this word that is sown in weakness and cause it to give forth a harvest a thousandfold. You plant that truth deep within us, and as it goes to work in reforming and refashioning us, likeness of your Son. Fulfill in us, indeed, O God, and fulfill through us all of your purposes for your glory, for our joy, hope of the nations. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Beloved, we are the redeemed among the captives. As Paul has been praying for us, he started that prayer with a blessing of God, a blessing to the God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you are in Christ by faith and by faith alone, There is nothing that you lack. You have it all in Christ. But what we have in Christ by way of that possession and inheritance of faith is not always reflected in the lives that we live here and now. The penalty for sin has been paid in Jesus Christ. The power of sin has been broken by Jesus Christ. The presence of sin is still here. But Paul, as he unfolds for us here, this the beginning of this exhortation of of moving from telling us who we are in Christ to beginning to help us to see the significance of who we are in Christ His prayer has shifted from a celebration and praise of God to an intercessory prayer, a prayer of supplication, praying to God for believers. In the sum of this, we said weeks ago, taking all of this rich, deep extravagance of God's grace and truth, moving it from head into heart, praying for you to not just be able to check off the boxes that you believe the things that the Bible says, but that your life would truly be built upon it, that it would be formed and fashioned by it that you would become the embodiment of that truth within this world. That you would be moved by God's truth. 
moved by the blessing of what it means no longer to be part of the world which is under Christ's feet, but now to be united to Christ, to be part of his body under his headship. You know one of the coolest things that that means? Even if you're like the lowest of the low on the rung, right? Let's say you're like the sole of the foot. You're still part of the body. And you're still participating in the rule of Christ over all things. Amazing blessing to be drawn into the body of Christ. And as we said last time, as Paul reminds us, we're drawn into the body of Christ. We, we are made one with the one who is in and of himself all glorious, who fills the all in all, and yet we fill him. As Calvin noted a couple weeks ago, it is as if Jesus considers himself incomplete without his church. That is what it means to be loved by Christ and to be drawn into his body. That Christ, does not want a creature that doesn't include the church. Guess what? You and I were not always in this amazing situation. You and I were, were not always in this situation of, 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 of being part of the, the people of God Paul reminds us, as he reminds the Ephesians, that it was just a few years prior to this letter that they were living in a debauched culture. They were living in a culture uh, that, was, that was bent on, on the life of worldly um, uh, pleasures, a life of worldly advancement, where life found its meaning in, in, in um, moving forward and in your work, in your reputation, in your money, uh, in your status, in, in your education, in, your, in your, um, your role in the religious worship of that day, whether it was to the goddess Diana or if it was to Caesar himself, that there was advancement to be found in this port city of Ephesus, in this, this culture, this decadent culture. A culture, as we have mentioned, is extremely, extremely similar to our own. This is where they were living, and that was the lives they were pursuing. And even more than that, we are told that they had been caught up in magic. They had been caught up in the dark arts. They had been caught up in, in the worship of, uh, in the participation in things that even made most Gentiles of that day a little uneasy and uncomfortable. And God had powerfully drawn them out of that darkness and into the light. The way Paul refers to it here in Ephesians 2 is that they were dead in their sins and in their trespasses. And what is being described here is what we call in Reformed theology or refer to in Reformed theology as original sin. 
that they were born sinners. They came into this world uh, who were fallen in Adam. And as a result, they were those who, by nature of being born sinners, they were those who did not meet the standards of God. They did not match up to who God is and what God required. They did not match up with with him in in terms of their, their own righteousness. They definitely did not match up with him by nature of their trespasses against his his truth. And this is the condition that we are are called to, to receive as being the condition that every single person who was born into this world outside of Christ, this is their existence. Dead in sins and trespasses. Notice what he says. This is who you once What he has just done for a chapter for a full chapter is just pile upon us truth after truth after truth of the extravagance of God's grace that God has done from beginning to end and all the way through the middle in order to rescue us, in order to redeem us, in order to buy us back through his son Jesus Christ so that we would no longer be uh, dead in sins and trespasses but now would be made alive in Christ. But notice the way that he is describing this death and this darkness. I introduced this idea um, back when we were still in chapter 1, that the way Paul understands the world of redemptive history, the world in which you and I live, is that there are these, these two realms or these two kingdoms. We often refer to them as the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light, You can refer to them as the kingdom of of Satan or the kingdom of Christ. Um, There's a city of God, the city of man. There's lots of different ways that that this has has been explained. And in our confession, in the Westminster Confession, in our catechisms, we refer to this as the estate of sin versus the estate of grace. That when you are born into this world, dead in your sins and trespasses, You are born into this realm, this estate of sin. And what that means is that is the realm that you uh, live within. And until or unless God does something to draw you out of that realm, that is the realm in which you live. And your life will bear the marks and characteristics of that realm. We call this total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that you are as sinful as you possibly can be. It doesn't mean that unbelievers will will behave so wickedly and unbelievably sinfully that they will carry out to the full their ability to be sinful. What it means is that being born in the fallen nature of Adam, you are trapped in the realm of death. And there is nothing you can do to get yourself out of it. But God. 
What God has done for us, beloved, is he sent us a champion who has come into this realm of death to be rescuing and to be saving his people out of that realm of death. He has been saving us. He has been redeeming us. He has been rescuing us. And we are no longer slaves in the estate of sin. But we are now in Christ, translated into the estate of grace. The Westminster Confession 9.3, man by his fall into a state of sin has completely lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself. But when God, 9-4, converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin. If you are not familiar with Article 9 of our confession, I highly recommend that you spend some time there and read and reflect as it unfolds for us what we often refer to as the fourfold estate of man. But it gives such a clear presentation of what the Scripture is teaching, what Paul is teaching us here in Ephesians 2, that when you're born into this world and you're born a sinner, you live in this realm of sin and death. You live in the realm of rebellion. You, and, and, and by nature of that, your life is going to reflect sin. It's going to reflect death. It's going to reflect rebellion. It's going to reflect alienation. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are taken out of that realm and you now live as one who has been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly. You are now part of the realm of life and light in Jesus Christ. But guess what? When you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you are drawn out of that realm of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, you don't immediately go to be at the right hand of Christ. Instead, we stay here until God draws us to himself, either through death or if Jesus returns. And until then, beloved, what Paul is setting us up for is to understand the magnitude and the significance of what it means for us to be people of the light still living in the realm of darkness, to be people of life, to be living in the realm of What this is supposed to do, beloved, is knock every one of us off of our self-righteous hobby horses. Not by causing us to think horribly and poorly of ourselves and to live in constant condemnation of ourselves because that contradicts what Christ has done and who Christ has made us to be. But what it is certainly supposed to do is change the way 
you interact with the world Notice that this kingdom of darkness here is referred to as a realm that is under the direction of evil forces. They knew that. They had been participating in that, in that magic. Now what this is not saying, just so we're clear, that Satan as the prince of the power of the air and, and his minions that uh, are part of the, the rule and the authority of the kingdom of darkness, it is by no means supposed to be seen as being on par with the kingdom of light or with the rule and authority of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul has already told us that when Jesus ascended to the throne just a couple verses ago, that he was raised up over every principality and power. Is there a realm of death that, that uh, Satan and, and his minions apparently have some kind of authority over? Yes, there is. But even that realm serves under the power and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And so these are not parallel kingdoms. They are not equal to one another. But both exist. And beloved, you and I are agents of the light who still live within that realm that is under, whatever that authority is, that is under the direction of those dark forces. Is that not cool? Is that how you see your life? That you are an agent and representative of life and light penetrating the enemy's territory to bear witness to that life and that light? There is no cooler movie that could even be come up with. Sorry, all the different, even sorry, Lord of the Rings. This is what it means to be in Christ. And this is what it means to understand the significance of original sin and total depravity. Not so that we can get on our high horses and feel superior, so that we might rightly and humbly interact with who we are in Christ. Not by making less of ourselves, not by making more of ourselves. He'll get to that in verses 8, 9, and 10. It's as C.S. Lewis said, it's by thinking of ourselves less. It's not being focused on yourself. It's being focused on God and focused on this kingdom realm that needs life and light. And beloved, that's what you are. My concern is that that's not how we live. We get caught up in the things of this world. Are we still citizens of this world? Yes, we are. We get so caught up and wrapped up in the things of this world, we forget that in everything that we are undertaking, we do so as agents of the world to come. And we will give ourselves to finite 
trivial instead of who we become. We will use theology as a hammer to hit others over the head with in order to feel superior to them. Then try to get them to do something that they are incapable of doing in and of themselves. Guess what a sinner is going to act like in the realm of sin and death? hope do they have apart from Christ in and through you? Quit trying to get people to do something that not only they're not, but they can't be. Instead, focus on being what you actually already are. You can be a blessing to and be used by God to spread the fame of his name through the coastlands, throughout the world, as we focus ourselves on being disciples of Jesus Christ, living out our discipleship in worship and in mission. We are about to come up on the Advent season, and one of the key themes of Advent is the mission of God in Christ. That his coming to this world and being born into this world, taking on flesh, is, is about mission. It is about him accomplishing his purposes and his promises. And what he does to accomplish this, to reveal his love, is by coming and taking on the situation as one who is inside the situation. That as the king of all light and glory in Jesus Christ is born into a world of sin and darkness and fallenness. And he lives as the perfect representative and ambassador of that kingdom. And he put that on display in humility, in patience, in kindness. So that this doctrine of original sin, this doctrine of total depravity, by the way, I didn't mention this. Total depravity only applies to unbelievers. Right? Look at 9.3 in the confession. As believers, you and I can still sin. But we also have been now granted the ability through our new nature and through the indwelling spirit not to sin. But these doctrines of sin are not meant for us to use them as hammers they are meant to help us understand pain, suffering, and the situation that, yes, the rebellion of man has brought on itself. That does not make it any different than even Christ, who, looking upon the masses, cried because they were lost. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Beloved, this 
this doctrine here of original sin and total depravity is meant to help us celebrate what God has done for us so that we can truly celebrate and be enamored with the extravagance of his grace. It is also meant to help us have a proper perspective and brokenheartedness over those who are still trapped, who are still slaves. Beloved, we are the redeemed. We live. So even as we come up to Thanksgiving, as we come up to Advent, as we move forward here in Ephesians chapter 2, what I really am, am, am wanting to impress upon us as we reflect on these things is, is, that, is the significance of what God has done for us that will result in a, in a worship of God to focus on what God has done in order to help us better pursue our discipleship as followers of Jesus Christ. But also, we might be renewed in our vision and our commitment to the mission of God in the earth. Fall in love with, with God and Christ and Celebrate what he has done. That celebration not leading to a humility, to a kindness, to a love, even for those who hate you. Take a moment. Ask the Lord to reveal to you that you need to be renewed your vision might be rightly oriented. Life in this world from the perspective of one who already dwells in the world to come. Beloved in Christ, God is constraining all of heaven and earth to the new creation. He is doing this in you with you today to give your thanks for what God has done. You are the redeemed. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the hope that you have given us in Christ. A hope that we do not deserve a hope that we are not worthy of, a hope that we had rebelled against, having hated you and rejected you. And yet, Lord, even in our hatred, in our rebellion, in our rejection, in our slavery, you came to us in Jesus Christ and you loved us out of that captivity to sin and death and drew us into the freedom of the redeemed, of those who now possess an eternal inheritance with the saints in light. And so, Lord, bless our efforts and bless our faith when we will take that faith, when we will take a step of faith and, and cultivate the light within our lives and, and take one little risk. Take one little risk, Lord, not to hide our light under a bushel, 
to instead let it shine. And may we, as the ambassadors of your grace in Christ, may we do this regardless of the response that we receive from others. As we become in Christ the aroma of death to those who are dying, the aroma of life to those who are coming to the kingdom. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.